Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, BloodyDisgusting.com's Dead Pixels horror video game podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Saturday. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Paul. And this week, I wanted to use my uh, recently procuring an Xbox Series S as a leaping off point to chat about uh, the preservation of games, as well as the idea of having this game's library that really travels with you from uh, console to console and generation to generation. Um, so... I spent last generation with a PlayStation 4, which was a big departure for me from sort of being a Microsoft guy for a while, if I want to put a label on myself, which I, as I say, I don't know that I necessarily want to label myself like that, but I always gravitated towards Xbox because I grew up in a PC household. The first console that I really got to play that was current gen was something like an Xbox where I went to a friend's house, they had Halo and GTA 3 and all these things, and I was like, oh, there's this whole new world other than my grandparents' Super Nintendo that I'd been playing for far too long where my friends had come over there like, what the hell is this? And I was like, oh, this is this great console. And they're like, well, we've got the Xbox. And that was sort of the jumping off point into sort of local multiplayer with friends and things like that. And then it really grew into a love of furthermore games that I could play with my friends, which was something that growing up with like a SNES, I couldn't necessarily do. And most of my friends weren't into PC games. So I had Xbox consoles a lot early on. I had the original Xbox, and then, of course, I had the 360, because all my friends had it, of course. And then I decided to kind of go from 360 to PS4, because I had obviously skipped the PlayStation 3, uh, and I wanted to kind of try something new. And so spent a lot of time with, obviously, the PS4 and all the fantastic games that were on that console and whatnot, and getting to play a few of big titles from the PlayStation 3 era that were remastered. But over the course of my time with the PlayStation 4, and again, lovely console, loved plenty of games that were on it, and there are milestones in my, uh, for lack of a better term, gaming history that I will never forget, it still always irked me that I had missed an entire generation of games. And the only way that I was really able to play them is if I went out and I bought a PlayStation 3 or if I was fortunate enough or consumers were fortunate enough, some developer decided we're going to remaster something from that generation. But I don't know about you, but I have a, I have multiple interests of genre and I like to play the biggest AAA titles. And I also like to play the lesser known titles and small indie stuff that you could only experience if you had had that past generation of console. And the PlayStation 4's lack of backwards compatibility still doesn't sit right with me in a lot of ways. The idea that going from having a PS2 at a certain point, I could play PlayStation 1 games and PS2 games, but then not having any sort of backwards compatibility outside of something like PS Now, which is great for certain things, it still is very, very limited in the way that you're able to access certain things from the PlayStation 3 era. Uh, in a lot, and even PS2 era, for that matter. Um, and so that was sort of my big drive to jump back into Microsoft and to get an Xbox Series S after uh, many failed attempts at trying to secure a uh, Series X, <laughs> which I've had, on, I can count on two hands the amount I've had in a, uh, a shopping cart and yet magically sold out within seconds of me uh, adding it and ha- punching in my credit card information. <laughs> but I think that, it really made me think a lot about just the preservation of games and what that means and our accessibility to games. And while I kind of, I'll detail throughout this episode, sort of, sort of my brief experience with the Series S 
and how it's been able to open up my gaming library to things that previously I would not have been able to experience unless I had had the console that they were originally released on. I mean, it it just makes me think so much about our availability to certain games and the ability for us to access games through legal means, of course. Um, but the idea just of how it seems that previously I was having to try to jump through hoops or go out of my way to have multiple consoles if I wanted to experience certain games. And that's something that still doesn't necessarily sit right with me in a lot of ways, but I'm curious kind of how do you find the whole juggling of consoles and their backwards compatibility and the ability to access the past while still obviously getting to experience the best of what the future has? Yeah, so weirdly, um, like you, it wasn't until PS4 that I really had that feeling of missing out. Because I had PS3, you know, but and I, I got it around the launch time, so I had the version that would allowed you to play older mm. games from PS2 and PS1 era, and that was great. And so I didn't really, you know, the early, the first year or so of that console where there wasn't much and everything was a disaster for that console, <laughs> which I, I dearly loved the PS3, you know, as much as people slag on it for being this failure, you know, it still sold more than the 360 in the end. <laughs> And, you know, despite all its problems, you know, we could go into that whole thing of console war or whatever, but, you know, Sony at their worst still did better than Xbox at their best. And that's because they focused on the right things at the end of it. But at the beginning, the unfortunate side effect of that was when they were failing, they had to make the console cheaper. And the way they'd made this console and the hubris behind it and making it such a bastard to work for meant that they had to rely on their own first-party titles a lot of the time to sort of showcase what the console could do. And often third-party games were uh, you know, weaker as a result. And the first thing they could cut that would save the money was you know, backwards compatibility. And that so you know and even I then ended up losing that backwards compatibility as time went on because you know I had to buy a new one you know my old one was very low data you know didn't have enough room on it and games got bigger and bigger and bigger you know a problem that has persisted through generations seems to be getting slightly better now though to be fair with compression but um yeah so it wasn't so much a problem then for the rest of that generation because you, you play the games and you'd be happy with them. It, it came to the point on the PS4 and there were certain games I couldn't play on that console at all. And two of those were like two of the things towards the end of that generation I played so much, you know. Uh, and uh, Pro Evolution Soccer is, you know, I know this is, but this is a horror game podcast, <laughs> but I'm making a point here. It's a game series I play every year. You know, every edition I played two hundred and fifty to three hundred hours of that game every single year, <laughs> and the final year of that game on PS3 was that was it. They were like, "We're not going to make a PS4 four version of this game because we're going to concentrate. We're moving our engine over to um, the Kojima's Fox engine at the time to make that work." So they took a year out and then they went on the next gen and I couldn't take that game over to the PS4. So I had to play FIFA <laughs> and uh, I didn't care for that so much. 
Um, and then the other one was XCOM, um, Enemy Unknown, Enemy Within. And I put so many hours into that, and I'd love it. And it was like the best thing at the end because I think uh, Enemy Within came on just as the PS4 was coming out. So I had a few good months of it before I actually got a PS4. I got a PS4 a few months into the end of the, uh, into its launch, and uh, it, it made me sad that I couldn't go back and play that. You know, and I get any more. I still had the PS3, but I have to go. You know, room wise, I have to go and set it up again, and that became harder and harder. And when you make the jump between consoles, it's always so noticeable how much faster the new one is compared to that. I mean, Chris, <laughs> I, I, I remember the jump to PS5 from PS4 and just been thinking, how do I ever accept this bullshit? <laughs> and I remember I remember thinking exactly the same about PS3 because it was painful hmm. going back to that system and downloading things and just like stuff that is like, by modern standards, really tiny, you know, like a few gigs. What was taking longer than games that uh, like take up an entire would take up an entire hard drive on, on a PS3 these days? You know, it, it's it's crazy. So yeah, it affected me when it came to PS4, where I couldn't for the first time I couldn't actually play my back catalogue of stuff. You know, I still keep you know I'm not overly sentimental sentimental towards my old games. There are stuff I keep, you know, I still have copies of the Thing game from PS2, Prince of Persia, uh, Sands of Time, Metal Gear Solid 2, and then stuff like Grand Theft Auto 4, you know, and um, that, the like. And I, I keep all those copies thinking, oh yeah, I could use them in future consoles. And then to not be able to use them at all, it just felt very sad, you know, because I... I mean nothing and yet I bought all these games they are on my account in lots of the digital games especially and yet I can't use them anymore and I got over it after a while once the PS4 sort of kicked into gear and all these new experiences came in as you said there was so much on that console that really made it the success it was and really cemented Sony for being the market leader again because they really did not just their own games but they backed smaller games you know from other studios as well that made them the big cheese so to speak and yeah like you you know being the industry I work in you know it's I I made a point of saying well I really have to have both consoles this um, generation as soon as I can I don't really but (laughs) (laughs) I, I did anyway and I got both, and of course the, the Series X was the first one. And the best thing I discovered early on that, it, you know, it wasn't a new game, it wasn't anything like that. The best thing was getting to just rediscover games I'd not been able to play in years because of that problem with the PS4. Absolutely, yeah. And it's not, I don't broach this object for this, this topic for this episode to try to. Uh, maybe slight PlayStation or anything like that, but it's the idea that Mm. the reality is I can't play certain games unless I saved prior consoles, right? For all the Mm. effort that they've gone to, and this is not to say that Xbox has made every single thing that they've ever released uh, accessible on the most latest consoles, but in terms of something like PlayStation, it 
became very clear that they were not truly invested in making their PS2 uh, catalog available on this console, right? They sort of, they have, I think their catalog tops out at like 30 or 40 games total. It might not even be that much in terms of things that were released on PlayStation 2 that you can at least play. They're not remasters. They're not sort of remakes or anything like that. It's just the ability to play them and to buy them. And I don't necessarily have a problem with having to repurchase games that are the base version of what they originally were, just being able to play them on a console. I'm not opposed to that at all. Um, It's just that when that catalog is so limited and some of them, you look at it and you're like, why the hell did you go to the lengths to make this, this available, but not some other heavy hitters from that era. And the reality that not a single PlayStation three game has that option, unless you get something like PS now, which is the comparable version of game pass, but for PlayStation. And yet that also is quite limited. And it's the reality that, PlayStation 3 games, which is the catalog that I wanted to access, is the one portion of PS Now that you can't download for local play. It's only streaming. Whereas the PS2 and the PS4 offerings, of course, are downloadable, which is comparable to Game Pass, where you can download anything that's on Game Pass to play, which is the much more stable connection. And even for somebody like myself that is fortunate enough to live in an area that has the great high-speed internet, so I can have that luxury of playing those games in near perfect but most people don't have access to high quality internet like that and even on the rare instances where i have a dip in my service or something like that or whatever whether it be weather-based or service-based just in general that's still a huge fucking headache for trying to access something the potential of losing your uh progress or anything like that um or i mean i'm gonna have this issue in a couple of weeks when i'm traveling the idea that i'm gonna not have internet I'm not going to have a solid internet. Mm. And I, if I wanted to play certain things, I couldn't download them on my PlayStation 4. Um, and I think also it's just the idea of being beholden to developers when they decide to make something available for your current platform. Like, of course, I got to experience uh, The Last of Us, the remaster, which was gorgeous and beautiful and getting to update this game. And of course, they've done that with plenty of other PS3 uh, classics and whatnot. But it's at the developer's behest and it has to be, they have to be incentivized to do that, obviously to remaster something or just to do the bare minimum in terms of like making it available, uh, which is not something that is really allowed or it's not really done for things that are not guaranteed to be bestsellers. If you're going to bring the resident evil games back, of course, those are going to be bestsellers no matter the quality of them, which I think we kind of saw with RE3. Um, or if it's something to the effect of like, yeah, if you bring Uncharted, an HD version of that to the PS4, yeah, it's going to sell like gangbusters. There's no question about that. Basically, it's a matter of do we want to do this? Yes, because it's going to print money. Uh, there's no real, yeah. I can't imagine there being much of a conversation outside of that. But again, I don't bring up these things to try to be like, well, PlayStation is, this is, PlayStation is the root of all evil in terms of losing backwards compatibility. If anything, I bring it up because it reinforces the idea that outside of a business decision, there's the reality that there is a history to video games. And that Mm. history, and it sounds sort of gloom and doom and apocalyptic almost to say, like that history is being lost and we're already seeing it with certain games in that unless you are maybe, let's say, let's go back to like DOS games. 
unless you are a hardcore PC gamer, you're building your own PCs and you know how to navigate that, there's an entire generation, there's decades of games there already that are not easily accessible to the masses. And not to say that everybody wants to go back and play all of these games, but the availability and the accessibility, I think, needs to be there. It needs to be easily accessible or relatively enough easily accessible. And to progress through a console generation that doesn't make it easily available to people, there's the risk that people are never going to experience certain things. And you mentioned The Thing. That's a game I guarantee will never, ever be given a PS2 port digitally, so to speak. Um, And I very much doubt that it will ever get a remaster, but that's speculation on my part. But that's an example of a game that personally I've never been able to play. Not only if I wanted to play it, do I have to track down a copy that would probably run somewhere in excess of 75 US dollars. I then have to go out and buy a PS2, which, yeah, you could find them, but... The reality is, is that I now have to own a console that is no longer in print. So there's the potential for I have to do extra legwork and pay an exorbitant fee for that or have dumb luck and stumble upon that or the copy of the game. And I don't know, the older I get, it it kind of makes me sad, the idea that there are things out there that people will never be able to experience, whether they know it exists or not, but it is just locked off by technology. And as somebody that personally doesn't collect consoles or have multiple consoles set up at any time, I mean, I've got, like my, like I said, I've got the Super Nintendo, PlayStation things, but those live in boxes in my house. I don't have them set up. I'm yeah. just, that's just not me. That's not my, uh, I just don't choose to have things set up like they're readily available all the time. And I don't necessarily want to have to dig them out and go to the bother mm-hmm. of trying to hook up these older consoles to my new HD TVs because I don't necessarily have a boob tube TV lying around from back in the day. So (laughs) in that, like it sounds very sort of first world problems to be complaining about something like this. But the reality is, is that when you compare the history of games to the history of film, it's one of those things where you can access almost any film that's ever been made. I mean, how many of us have been able to watch uh, journey to the moon or um, to on YouTube? Like, you know what I mean? Like it's one of those things where it's a film that's a hundred years old and yet I can pull it up on YouTube and watch it. And that history is not lost, but with games, it seems that there is a large swath of games history and the accessibility to these things that is being lost. And yeah, it sounds gloom and doom to say, and like, okay, well you've got all this other shit you can play at the end of the day though. Like imagine if you opened up a history textbook and chapters three, nine, 16, 21 and th- going on and on through history are just missing and there's n- they're g- gone forever uh, and granted his- world history I think is a little more important than video games but you get my point right <laughs> the idea that yeah. certain things are going to become lost forever unless people like you had procured a copy of the thing and that will never be taken from you but I would bet 75% of gamers don't know that exists yeah I mean that, that's not their fault at all either because right. it is the way the, uh, the industry goes so, I mean movies address this issue at some point I mean again it was by the time they did it was obviously a problem that they couldn't quite recover from properly you know there's still many movies that even for me where I'm just like I can't find a fucking copy of this right. thing in this country uh, and, it, and it's horribly frustrating as someone who loves to watch films, you know. And 
games very much are in that similar boat where there are games that are going to be lost to time now because not only you know, because the nature of the industry where teams move on companies shut down you know I we were talking in, in general public about uh, Amazon buying MGM mm. for instance and in theory that sounds great because they have all these great movies in their past and all that stuff like and you, you look at the history of MGM yeah and they were nearly went bankrupt about 10 times and had to sell off stuff here there everywhere so there's going to be so many complex rights issues within that company you know the, you know, I mean James Bond is a very big thing there where you know it's like sure that's part of MGM but as it stands power does not lie with Amazon you know in terms of how that franchise goes forward the, the other people have that uh, there are musicals from the 50s you know in that peak era you know the, the 40s to 50s period uh, of MGM you know the, where they don't have the rights anymore because they sold them off when they, they were going to die uh, because they done this ridiculous thing in that time period but they were making like god knows how many movies a year and they couldn't maintain that and yeah people talk about fucking crunch now with games it's like they used to make so many movies back in the day that it, it seemed insane you know <laughs> it's like that they would ever get round to it and yeah as a result look what happened right? and we we've seen the impact of that in games I think over the years where you know, trying to reach this brass ring, so many games have just been lost to time. I mean, key to this, for instance, is Konami. You know, we're talking horror terms here. Um, sure, in terms of Xbox here, you can buy the Silent Hill collection, which has two and three. Yeah which is great, but they're not the actual versions of 2 and 3 as they were and as they should be because so little care was taken to actually preserve those original copies and the code got fucked up and it all went wrong. So really, we're never going to have those proper copies of those games ever again. Mm. That's tragic when you think about Silent Hill 2 and the impact that had on the horror genre. I mean... It, it's horrifying yeah. to know that you've lost you know unlike a film where you can probably cobble stuff together a bit better you've lost the experience as it was forever and never get it back as it was and because of the uh, disdain towards that HD collection we're never going to get that you know we're, we're never going to Except the way it is now and the way it will be. And as a result, Silent Hill remains as it is. And even beyond that, you think, how many Silent Hill games can you not play right now? Uh, beyond that, it's not, you, know, you can play two and three, but can you play the first one? No, you can't, because there's no real legal way to support that. Can you play? even downpour now on a modern console. No, because they haven't made it backwards compatible. I mean, um, as much as there's been a renaissance for the 
developer behind the Yakuza series. One of the two of the best games, underrated as one of them is, is Yakuza Dead Souls, which is like Yakuza but with zombies, and Binary Domain, which is this sci-fi uh, Terminator Blade Runner type game. Can't play either of those on a modern console. Not backwards compatible. <laughs> and it's horrible. And sure, I think Binary Domain will come in time. But um, it's just depressing that you, you have no real way beyond PC of playing these things and having this access to stuff. And there are so many franchises I think that would benefit, especially in the horror section, that Silent Hill is big in this, that it would push a company like Konami to really have this you know, renaissance for the that franchise if there was better access to it. Much yeah. like Resident Evil is that. Yeah. Because if Resident Evil wasn't on every fucking console, <laughs> it would it wouldn't remain as relevant. It is understandable on that. There are people that grew up with Resident Evil Five who love the franchise because of that, you know? And and the fact that it has jumped from console to console to console. Great. That's great. That's good for them, mm. you know? And they love that. And they they are as much a part uh, of keeping Resident Evil alive as the people who were there from the beginning. As much as people rib on Resident Evil for having, oh, there's six different consoles you can play Resident Evil 4 on or Skyrim, you can play it on everything, including your toaster type thing. At the end of the day, people are familiar with those and being exposed to something that was from a generation you might not have been a part of, it might compel gamers to go back and play what came before it. And it makes them excited for the future, which, if anything, is what I feel every studio should want, right? Konami, especially with Silent Hill. I mean... So the only way now that I think that you can play Silent Hill legally is the original Silent Hill is you have a PlayStation 1 copy, which again, talk about something that can run you excess of $75 on uh, eBay or whatever, which it's probably more like 100 now. The reality is, is that you could download a digital version on PS3. That requires that you have a PlayStation 3 and go out and get one. And if you're somebody like me, I'm not interested in having a collection of consoles that I want to break yeah. out for that. I mean... I will add the Vita was very good right. for that as well. It had a lot of the PS1 classics mm-hmm. on it, which you know, it's like a side here when we're talking consoles and what they do. Nintendo gets a lot of credit for sort of like, oh, it's like this indie machine does all this stuff like that with the Switch in a handheld format. And the Vita, its main crime was the memory card costing so much money, but it it was a way back machine you know in your palm of your hand you could play Resident Evil Director's Cut Resident Evil mm-hmm. 2 Resident Evil Nemesis vagrant fucking story <laughs> on this fucking handheld console and it was wonderful I loved it again you know to be able to, it felt right it was the right you know when we talk about going back to games and I understand Sony's modern approach to old games is to let's remake them and then we can make more games off them. That's why they've done Demon Souls as a remake. That's why they've done um, Ratchet and Clank. Uh, you know, they, did, they remade the original Ratchet and Clank game and now they've got this you know, new version, new game out and that's doing gangbusters for them. It all makes sense. I, I get it. But 
having this handheld console that could play all these PS1 classics felt right. Yes. You know, it, you know, to play Final Fantasy VIII as it was, to seven, whatever, to play the original Resident Evils and Silent Hill, the original Silent Hill. <sighs> you know, once they realized that the Vita was failing, they just didn't bother. I mean, I get they want to avoid piracy, but that was really a great way to have kept the legacy going. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's horrible that that, to me, was the last legal way I could play Resident Evil 2, you know? So when we were talking about the um, the anniversary stuff uh, on the podcast before, when I replayed Resident Evil 2 that time, it wasn't a legal copy anymore. Yeah, uh, it, it it had to be it had to be a legal copy because I don't have the access to that anymore. Yeah. It's like I, I can only keep so much stuff. You know, I've moved from house to house to house. I haven't always had that much money and you can't always just keep hold of things. You you lose the ability to be materialistic on that and you have to sell stuff. And as much as I loved Resident Evil 2 and it, I cherish it, I had to sell that copy of it many years ago and I never re-bought it. And unfortunately, yeah, that, that's a horrible regret that I end up coming to it in a legal format. But it, it shouldn't be that way. We don't need a remaster of anything. And this is, I think, an important no. distinction to make is accessibility is about having access to it can be an original version. I don't care how dated it looks. I don't care if you've still got tank controls or whatever. Being able to have access to something easily that does not break the bank, mm. I think, obviously, it seems to not be in, in the developers and the big companies are not incentivized to do that for everything because it's not guaranteed to make them money and the money they have to dump into that, the manpower, the effort, it deviates from certain things. For them to make a big Resident Evil gorgeous remaster as phenomenal as those can be we've seen at the end of the day though like i just want accessibility to things and access to them the fact that if you want to play a ps2 or sorry the classic uh, resident evil 2 the idea that you have to spend an exorbitant amount of money of access to that to me is ridiculous yeah and i think that that's something that i felt very strongly about during my time with the playstation 4 and that i don't have a ton of money to go out and buy every game that I want that comes out when it comes out, right? I kind of like budget mm. myself so that way I can have access to a certain amount of games throughout the year, and that's that. And in the downtime, I would love to have the option to, like the PlayStation 3 did, to buy these PS1 classics that got down to like $6 or $10 or hell, even if they yeah. were $20. You know what I mean? Like when they had that sort of, the but when the PlayStation 1 era, they had those like budgeted classics, which were like 20 to 30 bucks at a certain point in that generation. Even if it was 20 or 30 bucks, I could get two PlayStation 1 classic games or let's say PS2 games or PS3 games for the sake of the argument to tide me over or just to have access, the ability to play them. But the idea that I wanted to play through the Silent Hill games and I never did with a PlayStation 4, the only way I could access them was, well, you've got the option for two and three and that's through PS Now, which... At the time, I had shit internet, and I could only stream them through that, yeah. and that's based on a subscription. I never had the option to purchase them, which, again, that is what it is. You can either stream it and play it, or you can't purchase it, which I would always prefer to be able to own it, but 
if that's not made available, it's not made available. And yet, when I got my Xbox Series S, to bring it back to that, the first thing I did was buy the Silent Hill 2 and 3 HD collection, which I understand are not the uh, the best way to experience those games from what I've heard, but I don't know any better. So I'm jumping at the opportunity to have the ability to own them and to play them in a way that doesn't break my bank. It doesn't mean I have to kind of scour the internet for a copy because they're not in print anymore and I have to spend 70 or 80 or $100 on them. I think it is the greatest disservice that we've gotten to a point where something like the original Silent Hill is viewed as a collector's item where you have to spend $100 to play it and have the console to play it on. And yeah, I could buy a PS3, but I don't think it is a big ask or it is too demanding to think, well, I'm buying this console. Why is so much of this game company's history locked off? Why do I have to go Mm. backwards to something that I don't think it's a stretch to be like, well, in 30 years, is that going to be available? If you don't make it available, that thing is going to become lost to a certain degree through legal means, at least, I guess if they want to push everybody to have to access ROMs and illegal versions of things to experience them, they're sure as hell going to do that. If they're not going to work towards preservation as much as maybe like modders or just gamers outside of companies are, because we see that, right? We see people doing things like that, these efforts to preserve things. And then when they get hit with these copyright strikes, it's like, well, you're allowing your own history to disappear unless you want people to buy into this sort of secondhand market, which then you see people getting swindled for hundreds of dollars potentially for things. Yeah. It's, you know, in the film industry, for instance, piracy in general seems dumb because there is accessibility to most things. And the only way I advocate piracy as a thing is when you cannot readily buy something and have it you know and in video game terms that is very much the case and I don't think you can make the excuse of oh we have a remake of this game right and say that's fine um, again I think a very Sony are again very much into this idea of doing that of remaking stuff or, or encouraging remakes from other companies, including Resident Evil with two and three. And, you know, Shadow of the Colossus, for instance, I adore that game. It came out on PS2, wonderful. Played that so many times. Came out on PS3 in a HD, wonderful. Bought it again, did that. I couldn't play that PS3 version again without doing it on PS Now, which, you know, is dog shit. Yeah. Uh, and at the time, again, I had awful internet, you know, and I could not really do PS Now properly. I couldn't really play multiplayer games for that long, you know, and it, you know, when games really shifted to that kind of game, I felt very disillusioned with the uh, move to that because I, I couldn't really join in in the same way a lot of the time. So I, I did end up focusing on more single player experiences. But to get to that point where you cannot do anything with games you grew up with and love without setting up 
and an old console. Yeah, I have still, we've still got a PS2 upstairs. But to set it up, you know, it, it, as much as you can love something, is it really worth just setting something up to play something? And you kind of have that fear that you're going to not enjoy it as much as you... Because you're putting so much effort into revisiting something you love. It puts a pressure on it. In an era where if something's not one click away, we're not necessarily going to yeah. seek it out. And, you know, it again, it I think it, it probably sounds a lot, this idea of like first world problems. Like, oh, you got to set up your console or what? But that's the reality. I mean, when you are a developer or you are one of these big game studios, you should be striving to make everything as easily accessible as possible. The idea that you are going to, your solution is, go set up your console to your TV that hasn't been accessible. Like the hookup for that PS2 that you have upstairs is not an easy process for a modern television. Like you have to buy an adapter or whatever. And that's just another expense. And the idea that Hmm. a majority of film, again, there's of course exceptions, but a majority of film is a $3 or $4 rental through Amazon away. That's all it takes a majority of things yeah. and there are often free alternatives to these the idea though that games are locked behind this physical thing that you have to go back to the way back t- time machine to get potentially and spend an exorbitant amount of money that a majority of people don't have and to be like well you can stream it through our service majority of people have dog shit internet that's not the reality for most people in the world that they have this high speed 200 gig whatever crazy internet that people like me are fortunate of just because of like i live in the united states i live near a major city yeah we're prioritized that's not the case for a majority of people and i think that it is such a fucking cop-out for developers or big studios to be like well you can access it but it's through these restrictive means and this is one of the elements that within a week and a half of having my xbox series s that i'm thankful for that okay I can access the first two things I downloaded were uh, Black, that first person shooter from like 2005 or 2006 on the Xbox, and the original Dead Space. I was able to download both of those, and I don't have to worry about my internet connection. There can be a storm and my Wi Fi router can go out, but so long as I got power on my Xbox and my TV, I'm good to play that for as long as the license allows that it's on Game Pass. Of course, I don't own those, but I could buy them if I want to through the Microsoft Store. You know, I have a very complicated thing with this with, with Microsoft because I despise the company for many things. And, you know, Game Pass is an interesting thing because there is a lot wrong with it as much as there is right with it. But on the positive side, there, I, I say this. You can, you know, if a game is going to leave Game Pass, they tell you, and they offer you a discount. You know, on buying it if you really want to keep going which is great brilliant that's exactly what you should do um obviously when you t- talk in uh movie terms netflix can't do that because they don't work on a purchase model amazon could do that but you know at least you have the option to buy stuff if you really want to keep all of it um but there's that and the fact that you know, rather than just say, oh, well, here's a bunch of stuff from the past, you know, like Microsoft's have done 
a very admirable job of uh, making games from the past work better mm. and run better and you know which with the way it works in in this medium means that they just play like you remember them rather than um, you know be anything revelatory but it's still that is the key selling point I, I think of Game Pass is that when you go back to older games and even games from a few years ago where they had so many problems oh like I, right good example here is Prey by Arcane mm. that game when it came out the controls were a bit iffy the frame rate was a bit iffy it looked a bit iffy sometimes I loved the game so much as it was but now through this through the way they've done things with, with Xbox and with Game Pass because of course they own Bethesda who own uh, who, who own Arcane means the game now runs smooth as fuck <laughs> you know it, it's 60 frames per second and it controls like a dream it's the game I wished it and it feels like a whole new experience to, to play this game again you know it's like it, you're not just playing the game you remember and fondly love but it loads quicker it runs quicker everything feels more fluid it accentuates the experience you once once had you know it's like when you go back to much in the way of media you had this thing where there's something you were you know especially after many years um you feel, mm, yeah, okay, this isn't quite as good as I remember it, you know, and because, you know, you grow older, you learn more about the world and how things work, and and you've played other games in this case that make you think this, that, and the other, but with this, it kind of has a freshness that you wouldn't otherwise get, you know? It's like, in movies, they can make something 4K, you still know when the, the naff effects are coming in and all that you know like with this it's like they they make everything look better run better and it does you know at the very least make the game as you remember it you know and that that is perfect that is exactly how it should be and if anything else game pass does doesn't sort of gel that alone, you know, when you know, Microsoft in general doing that sort of upgrade for games that are older on Game Pass makes it an enticing prospect. And I think that that is at the core of games preservation in a lot of ways, right? Because there is the potential now for an entire new audience, and this kind of leaps into the next thing I wanted to bring up, where an entire new audience is going to come to a game that they might never have experienced and their chances are, if they're a couple years removed from that game's release, they are going to experience the best version possible, potentially, of mm. that game. And all of a sudden, all of the things that might have in, resulted in a game being panned when initially released and people are like, well, I'm not going to fucking take a shot on that with $60 when it's got all these issues. All of a sudden, they're coming to a game now that is devoid of all of the issues that it used to have. 
and all of a sudden yeah. they're coming to it where all the fervor that's on the internet and whatnot, especially on Twitter, is not re- revolving around something. And I think that that is incredibly important. The context in which people approach games and something like Game Pass. Yeah, I subscribe 15 bucks a month. I get games with gold, get to play games online. I also get this crazy large uh, games library now at my disposal, which I mean, when I looked at the amount of options I had day one, like my (laughs) eyes basically popped out of my head. But the idea that somebody that's not necessarily tuned into games and games and media and news and things like the way that you and I are, they might stumble upon something that most people were not crazy about when it first came out and they're coming to it fresh and without that bias that a lot of us could have when we consume games media like that. And that is incredibly important to games getting a secondly, essentially like a second wind in a lot of ways. We talked about uh, Amnesia Rebirth, a game that you and I both loved, but it seems that a lot of people moved on from it or didn't necessarily give it the time of day because of when it was released or their preconceived notions about it or what some reviewers said, oh, it's a continuation basically of just something that had worked before and this is sort of a more polished version of it. Imagine coming to that game five years from its release when it's on Game Pass. People that didn't hear any of that fervor, didn't read any of the reviews or anything of that, and now... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline a whole new crop of gamers it's one two clicks away from their game pass screen and i think that microsoft again again not to like compare them between sony and whatnot and say one is better than the other that's not really the purpose of this conversation it's more so just about the this specific approach which i'm getting to experience for the first time it shows that they are very business savvy in terms of an audience and thinking of an audience first and foremost and having the ability for drawing in developers with their games and saying we can guarantee you a certain number of an audience that you might not have otherwise i think about uh the game the medium from bloober team which i started playing last week that is a game that i i feel comfortable in saying if it was not on game pass a majority of people that are not hardcore horror fans or horror gamers they would not go out of their way to spend 60 or $70 on that game. They wouldn't. But it's right. on Game Pass. So why the hell not? It's a download. It's All it costs you is your time, other than a subscription fee, of course. It costs you your time to download it. Why wouldn't you test it out? Why wouldn't you try that game out? Why wouldn't you try out something like Oxenfree or Rebirth, for that matter, if that ever becomes part of Game Pass? The exposure that benefits developers to have their games be part of Game Pass in the long run will benefit gamers the idea that you're going to get access to this thing and yeah you don't own it that's a reality that you can't escape no matter how much i've been enjoying my time with game pass and series s and things like that but you have access to it and if it was going to go away you are incentivized you have the chance to purchase it for a discount or you're given a 30-day heads up essentially where if you disconnect your console from that uh from the internet there's 30 days there before it needs another license validation or whatever. So chances are you could finish it before it leaves if you didn't want to purchase it. Yeah. Um, which 
I think Microsoft deserves a lot of credit for in terms of not having it be streaming only, which it, it really infuriates me in a way that it's not a problem that I've encountered, but I know a great deal number of people that have shit internet. And that should not be a limitation because it's not a reality of where our society is at or globally even this idea that broadband's not accessible to a lot of people. As somebody that works with a lot of people that are not able to access internet in a way that the requirements are set so high as if everybody can meet them. I mean, that's infuriating on a level that exceeds games. It's not even about games. It's that can you access the internet reliably, let alone Mm. can you stream or download gigabytes of data at a time. That's an element that I think it's really naive to assume that everybody can access that. And when you start limiting people based on their accessibility to things, you get into this scenario we have with certain developers and uh, big studios where you got to spend $100 to play this game and to own this game if you're not able to stream it or to download it. We've certainly sold the benefits of uh, Game Pass, and there are many. I have to say but like I said before I have a natural disdain to Microsoft's general practices and that does come into this too because I feel like while Game Pass works in certain situations and it, it, it really isn't the way it's going and the way it feels like they will go with uh, Microsoft acquiring big studios and saying they're going to have these big games on Game Pass Day 1. That is the danger of devaluing the impact of games in, in the future. I, I think now, when we talk about, like you were just saying, about some, something like The Medium by Bloober Team, who are you know this relatively small studio doing something ambitious, you know, that makes perfect sense for Game Pass because as you said it's something that everyone will pick up it gives it a bigger audience and that will grow a company like that you know that, that that might do more good than harm for them but when you you know worst case scenario yeah say Xbox got control of Konami or Capcom or something and, and they have a Resident Evil or a Silent Hill to drop that on Game Pass on day one genuinely devalues that that product you know it makes it content rather than art mm. and this is always a debate when you're talking about a streaming service are you making this to be something meaningful or are you making it to be something that can be consumed and that's it and when you think of big games this year that have come to Game Pass I think of Outriders My People Can Fly which is you know, a fun game you know, perfectly serviceable People Can Fly do good shooters they did Bulletstorm they helped out with you know, Fortnite in its early days but I can entirely see why that game ends up on Game Pass because it is entirely unmemorable. Mm. True. You know, it, it because it as good as it can be in the moment, it feels like content no. rather than art. It doesn't feel like something that matters. 
I think we discussed this recently uh, about these kind of things where something has to mean something sometimes, you know. I don't think Game Pass really allows for that. You know, even when you think of Netflix's model, you know, stuff feels like, even when it's good, it still feels like it's made to be a success in the long run. You know, it doesn't feel like it's made to be something unique and genuine. There are exceptions because of the sheer amount of money they put into it. I, again, reference like stuff like Bo Burnham's Inside, where they're going to pay the money anyway because you know, the guy is popular and they'll, they'll make their money back and that, that's fine. But people like that will say, yeah, I'm going to make the money as so I'll make whatever the fuck I want with it <laughs> and it will be unique and people will praise it for that. But 90% of the time, you're not going to get that. You're going to get, you know, to not knock this too much, but Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. Mm. <laughs> you know, things that are cool in concept, but are really, when you really boil it down, there's nothing meaningful to them. They are just entertainment on the basest of levels. And I, and I think, I, I don't think Microsoft is the company to understand the difference absolutely not <laughs> no, no, I really don't I think while Game Pass has its good intentions I think Game Pass is born of a desperation to undermine and undermine another company yeah. you know rather than be for the greater good it's great that they have this catalogue of old games in there that people can experience and it can do something positive with that. But I don't feel like that's actually their intention, you know? In the long term, it seems far more problematic to the reasons you're saying. And I think that it's that type of scenario where you would hope the ideal thing would be like, hey, Microsoft is going to come to a developer that has already had this idea permeating for a number of years or they've already Mm -hmm. been in development for so many years that essentially... Microsoft getting involved gives them more of an audience and potentially a cash injection just when they might need it, which I don't know all the specifics, but I'm pretty sure the medium was an idea that Bloober team tried in the past generation and the technology wasn't there. Trying to get both the uh, spirit world and the normal present world perspectives going simultaneously, the technology was not there. So this was an idea that they had had for a number of years They'd gotten to a certain point in development and then Microsoft came in and was like, they offered them one of their uh, Game Pass deals, which is like a lump sum or sort of over time in terms of like the amount of exposure it gets type thing. But I totally see what you mean in terms of Microsoft going to developers with this Game Pass model and being like, hey, you're in the pre, pre early stages of development. Let's get in on this together. And all of a sudden it's like, well, this is trending. You and I have been talking a lot recently in the last few weeks about oversaturation and the idea of taking things that are hot and trendy, whether it be on Twitch or just something that people are gravitating towards in the Steam uh, early access marketplace and being like, yo, that shit's hot. We're going to put that in our game and developing around trends. And yeah, you got the money to do it, but there's no passion. There's no drive in it. There's nothing more than 
it being a piece of content that would be the next thing. And I don't know if it's a fair comparison, but I would put it to the idea that it's sort of like a lot of developers that you saw pop up in early 2000s where you look at their sort of resume and it was all licensed stuff or tie-in stuff. And it was more so the movie tie-ins that we no longer even remember or mention uh, in the same breath as some of the ones that stood out because, hey man, we got some good contract work from a big studio, a big developer. We're going to do the Garfield game three or whatever. You know what I mean? And their whole resume is just a series of hits like that. And yet you never see anything on there that took more than not even 12 months to develop. And so it becomes this thing where, yeah, you worry that Microsoft has so much money and influence that they're going to start buying up all these developers time and be like, Hey, develop us some shit that we could recognize in a board meeting and we can sell in a PowerPoint just so that way Sony doesn't have access to something like that. And I think that, is 100% correct in what you've been saying in that we start seeing games that are reactionary to a market rather than getting developers that are truly passionate and making something that you and I, people like you and I would call art. I guess certain portions of the masses might not care as much because they get something like Outriders where it's like, yeah, you get that and you can play it for a couple of weeks or a couple months and you forget about it. Those are not the types of games though that fuel creativity within the medium of games as a whole and it's easy to fall into the sort of like oh we're talking gloom and doom with the games industry but when you start having a market that is very reactionary instead of sort of uh true of heart and passion driven you're gonna get a whole lot of shit that nobody cares about for more than three to four months at a time yeah and you know just to sort of balance the books here Sony are just guilty of this now because they have, because of the failure of PS3 at the time, they have become very safe and cautious about what they do. And so many of their games follow a very familiar formula, you know, um, and people use that as a a stick to hit them with, and that, that is completely fair, I feel. You know, I say this as someone who's you know, played on PlayStation consoles for many years. I don't think they are quite the creative force they were either. Because it, and this is where the problem lies to me, because they are responding to the jabs that Microsoft make towards them about, oh, we can do this, we could do this. And as a result, we're getting less creativity. You know, I mean, Microsoft bought Double Fine you know one of the most inventive silly fuckers out there in terms of game production and ingenuity and I don't feel like that will help Mm. anyone in that situation I mean Psychonauts 2 they're making what have they made though in the last five years that was nearly as memorable as what they had made the previous ten Sure. I mean, <laughs> I, I will argue it's probably more than five years now, but Broken Age was good. You know, it felt like a proper game from that developer. But yeah, it, it they've had some hit and miss stuff. With it. I but I don't mind that about Double Fine. That that's how they have worked and operated over time. Now I feel like how long will they last? in this uh, current environment where they are going to be under more pressure to to deliver a certain kind of game 
for Game Pass. But then at the same time, we say this, and it's like, and again, with this whole Netflix-style model, will Microsoft even care? Well, they'd be like, well, it's different to what we normally give out. So that, that gives us an out if it doesn't do as well. And we can, you know, they'll, they'll make money out of it because the idea is not to make a consistent role of critically acclaimed games necessarily that do well financially. It's more about here's stuff we've got that you haven't got. And that's it. Yeah. But um, as much as we pointed all this out, I mean, the major point we should be bringing up here is how that affects horror and horror games because you know we've talked about how this will affect games and how they are artistically as a whole and I think the more stuff that ends up on Game Pass and I think the more the easier it becomes to make games that normally would have just been on PC Mm. and maybe come onto consoles later Uh, they will end up on stuff like this. And Sony last generation focused a lot in the early years on doing indie games because it was a sort of a good thing to sort of stabilize everything and give them stuff on in the early days. They've ignored that a bit and given Microsoft and Switch and Nintendo a, a sort of an advantage in that regard. But that's, I mean, that's the area you're going to get the inventiveness from now. You know, the real, the, real, the, the smarts from. You know, I, I think there's so many indie developers in the horror space that, that really have done so much in the last few years to make, you know, whether that be a short game like Paratopic mm. or, or like a 98 D-Make stuff or Ed or stuff, you know, like, like Faith from him. It, those are such singular experiences that they I don't feel like they'd fit in the current uh, war that you have going on for attention between the main benefactors of that. I think we need them to stay in the PC space. Mm. And as much as I hate the snobbery of that, space as it was and I say this again coming from someone who has been on PC since 1997 you know before it was ever a sort of a oh, well it's better than you sort of nonsense you know PC has so much freedom to do things and not ironically you know the, the argument in the modern PC space is graphics 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 oh look what we can do with all we, we have but how many of the most memorable and important PC games of the last 10 years have been fairly substandard in terms of visuals? And because it hasn't mattered. Yeah. Because the real experience is in what it does beyond that. Well, for I would say for like PC, the reality is, is that it's all about low risk and low cost to develop this creativity. And that's the reality of it that I don't necessarily know a lot of people would like to say they would rather say stuff like well it's the best graphics it's the best graphics that money can buy type thing but in reality when you look at the most memorable experiences that we've had on pc in probably the last 10 years 
how many of those were because of their visual fidelity? I think that's always the cherry on top with things where it's like, well, do I want to get Metro Exodus on PC or do I want to get it on console? Duh, I want to get it on PC because of the way it looks. But when you get down to brass tacks about games that are actually pushing and more specifically the horror genre what is pushing the genre in new directions and exciting directions and we'll see these ideas surely be poached by bigger studios and things like that down the line it's because a developer was able to develop something on their own more than likely it's a one-person passion project because it's lower cost and chances are they don't have the same resources obviously that a big developer does so they can pursue something that is weird that is different that is potentially genre pushing and genre redefining because they can do it themselves nobody is going to take a risk on this weird idea that some guy has with studio money on console that's just a reality unfortunately and i think that you're dead on in terms of pc is the space to do that and it has nothing to do with that sort of whatever pc elitism that people want to always talk about or whatever that type of like console war nonsense that i don't subscribe to and obviously you don't either but it's this idea that you have to be realistic sony and microsoft is not going to give somebody they've never heard of whose resume is i like games and i know how to code games i've got this weird idea that's just not realistic and the pc space is fantastic for that and it also happens to be where you can get visual fidelity of stuff that you could play on console Mm -hmm. and the like but I think you're right that to ignore the PC space in that regard, you see a ton of creativity that funnels into console experiences. It just, it's lost. And then we kind of have this thing where, well, we're just going to have the sort of same reactionary things that big developers for consoles want to dump out every year because, well, if we don't buy this guy up, then the other, the other big console is going to get him, kind of thing, which is not yeah. good for the consumer in the long run, no matter how little some people want to acknowledge that. Yeah, and the greatest irony of that is that indie indie developers get nostalgia in a way that um, many big companies don't. And it's like when we were talking earlier about you know Sony had this idea of being a company that only delves into nostalgia by remaking mm-hmm. their past. Because, and, and as I said, that is perfectly viable. I get it entirely. It makes sense to me because, you know, you have a modern audience that maybe maybe haven't experienced those older games. They're not going to go back to those older games. Sure, I get that. Uh, and so to bring that up to date for them, brilliant. It, it may help. But on the other hand, you have... And especially in the horror space, I find you have all these independent developers, especially on, on itch.io, that will make these games that were inspired so greatly by what the games we remember. You know, I think of like the Glass Staircase, which is like it, it's a survival horror game. It's very Silent Hill-esque, but also very much unlike those. It feels like if Dario Argento had made a game, you know, it, it, it's amazing in that regard. I think a paratopic, a game that can, you can finish in less than an hour, and yet 
is mesmerizing and has stayed with me in a way that very few games have. I think of uh, Variable States Virginia, you know, which I get people piss on it for basically ripping on Twin Peaks and the X-Files so much, but it does things as a game. I, I've seen game, you know, big budget games that have tried to rip on the X-Files and Twin Peaks and even middling games that would try to do it, like the Deadly Premonitions. But that game did so much right and still had its own identity. And I remember it so well for what it did. And I think we need that sort of thing. And I I feel like we've gone on a little bit of a tangent here, but I think if you're going to have a subscription service you should be willing to take more risks yeah. with things like this you should be asking the puppet combos the 98 makes and the data Zemanski of the world to make console ports of their games to be part of your service mm-hmm. sure in the long you know there's a bit of me that says ick and I'd imagine with some of those developers they would say the same but if you really want to push games forward and show how you can embrace nostalgia whilst doing new things, having these smaller developers, hungry, inventive developers doing stuff for you, it, it surely makes you look better. Again, I come back to the quote I have said before on previous podcast the Mark Kermode thing of film which is like blockbusters will never fail apart from the very rare exceptions so why not try and make a good one you know why not why not try and take risks because you're still making money so do something different yeah and you have so many people out there who will cost a load less money than, than the people you actually employ you know who are just idea men uh, and have the hunger and desire to do something different and all because you're worried about what some people who don't really give a shit about games beyond this vague idea of what games should be why? why not give someone with some actual style and ingenuity a chance the reality is that something like Game Pass 2 now, they have established an audience that is subscribed with Game Pass. It helps also now that they're doing this thing that I just took advantage of, where it's three months for a dollar a month or something for the first three months, right? You've got my money. Any, I would be hard-pressed to find somebody that is not going to jump at that idea of subscribing to that for, it's a dollar a month for three months, whatever. And as generally seems to be the case with uh, subscription services, once somebody's subscribed, they're just... They're not going to deal with that. Whatever, if that's speculative. But the idea is is that you have a, an audience established, especially with the fuck ton of games and classic in terms of like Microsoft products or Microsoft uh, titles. You have an audience built into this and you've got a wide enough audience yeah. that no matter what you put out there, it is almost guaranteed, I would assume, that you are going to be able to get a return on investment. And when you're going to these indie guys, like you had mentioned... They are, do not cost as much. What Obviously, every indie developer should be receiving a fair share in terms of whatever they're working for. They should be adequately um, 
paid for that work and whatnot. The mm. idea, though, is, is that they are much cheaper based on the nature of what they're developing and what they're making. It's smaller. It's not as graphical fidelity focused as some of the stuff we've been talking about. It's just cheaper. That's the realm of games that they're operating in. The idea then that you can't get a return on that minimal investment, minimal being relative to Microsoft, what they usually pay, is ridiculous. The idea that they would not be able to do that is bullshit. They could 100% finance these more indie titles. And it's, to be frank, cowardice on their part that they're not willing to take that leap when they have the audience that almost anything they put out there will be successful to a certain degree. Is it going to be as successful as a Call of Duty? No. Is it going to be as successful as a yearly uh, sports title? No. But it's still going to be successful for what that is and the size of what that thing is. It will be successful on that market that they have curated over the course of Game Pass's lifetime. And the fact that they are not doing that, the fact that Sony is not doing that, I think is cowardice. And it shows that they're not willing to take risks that for as much as their studio heads or their uh, platform heads like to come out and say like, yeah, we're all about the audience and we're willing to have lots of experiences. It's still fairly rudimentary in terms of what they view as being successful and they need to take more leaps in that. And sure, they're, I would say for the most part over the course of the last five to 10 years, it would probably be Microsoft has been more open to the indie space, but they need to even look smaller and more finite than that because that's where the true ideas that are going to propel entire genres and generations of games is going to come from and yeah we've been a little uh a little maybe soapboxy in that regard (laughs) but i think that it just kind of shows that there is a need that's still not being met and when you talk about the long the larger conversation of the preservation of games and the continuation and pushing things forward in new directions These are the conversations that need to happen. And when you get down to it, accessibility should not be viewed as a luxury. It should be the the de facto standard, I think, with companies. And hopefully, I think we've seen some steps being made in that regard. But I think that there's still a lot of work to be done. And conversations like this, I think, are uh, while they're therapeutic, I think they're also important because there needs to be more of an emphasis on certain things because otherwise, like, yeah, when you start forgetting parts of history of a medium it sounds again very much first world problems but that's important because otherwise you start end up being stuck in our ways and regimented and that's not good for consumers in the long run so these things aren't going to happen unless consumers beat their chests a little more than they've been doing to put that sort of pressure on big studios and developers and the like it happens to be a thing i'm very passionate about but um i just think that games are a very critical point in their life that we have the big budget stuff and in any other medium you know when you come to awards time you know, it's like okay thinking about this isn't technically true but say film yeah yeah film has a very distinct area it goes for when it comes to say oscar season you know it's always something that's meaningful and you know something that really hits the heart in game terms when you think a lot when it comes to award season it's popular it's a popularity vote yeah and that's disturbing in a lot of ways that we allow that to continue and 
you think of any um, debate over any big game, you know, I've seen on Bloody Disgusting Alone two full fucking reviews for Days Gone have given it three stars that have got shit for giving it three stars. And it's like, with valid reason, you know, with well-reasoned arguments and to say that, you know, there are good things about it. But there's this cult personality about it that means that we don't get to discuss the th- these things properly. Right. And we end up with this whole thing of, you know, the the disnification of um, games where unless a game meets certain criteria, it, it, the general public will be like, well, no, it shouldn't count. That's it. You know, unless it, it it gained this organic uh, greatness as a multiplayer game, like say Among Us, or it tell, if it didn't tell a story like The Last of Us Part Two, which you know it feels like a sort of an outside example because general gaming public were pretty shitty towards that game because of reasons, but there you know it, because it was a big game it sort of transcended that so it didn't matter we we need to get beyond that you know The Last of Us Part 2 is a very good example of a game that could have been analysed better mm. you know it felt like we went in two directions the, the people that criticised it rightly but it felt harsher because the other end of it was so you know fawning and yet, you know, that's it. We, you couldn't get a middle ground, it, it seemed. And it feels like in any sort of game review you do for anything big, especially, in, you know, in horror is very much the case. Like, you think of Village, you know, it's had very divisive reviews in a lot of ways, but the general consensus is, oh, yeah, it's great because this, this, and this. I'm just as interested to hear the faults of that game as I am you know, the, the praise towards it. I think we should embrace both sides of that in any game. You know, it, it, it becomes a thing that needs to be dealt with. And, you know, that, that, that's not exclusive to games alone. You know, we, we know that. We know that, you know, film critics, music critics, whatever, will, will get the same issues we get here where you know people will tell them off I, I was saying to you before uh, uh, during the recording for a couple of podcasts that you know I did an article on um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer games mm-hmm. and my main point was I'm disappointed we didn't get more of them at a point where the series was at its peak and they kind of understood what they needed to be as video game adaptations and yet, I still got someone have a go <laughs> that I, you know, that saying that, oh no, you don't get it, you, you don't get it, you are being mean to these things I like, and it's like, just free, free the fucking. <laughs> this is kind of like what we had been talking about um, independently of this before we started recording. This idea that something, a service like Game Pass, again, it has its faults. It's never to the purpose. This was never to sort of be an advert for that. It's to highlight some of the benefits of it while there are still faults, of course. But it's the idea that 
certain games can get a second wind and they can be experienced free of the fervor that is online. And especially, I mean, you mentioned Among Us. That was a game that came out and my knowledge of it, it didn't seem like a great deal of people gave a shit. And then it was able to get a second wind essentially on Twitch and whatnot. And there's this fervor now that is unavoidable. Right, you it's yeah. it's per it's left the realm of video games and it's penetrated popular culture in a way that very few games do, and something like The Last of Us. I'm trying to imagine if that ever came to like PS Now or something within three years of its release or whatever that was not surrounded with all this sort of nasty vitriol that came with that game that was so loud that it got to the point where any criticism was viewed as well. Is this criticism kind of uh, falling in with this vitriol camp that is taking shots at this game for reasons that are unjust, right? Imagine experiencing yeah. that game free of all the bullshit and the criticism and the discussions that would be able to happen around that game without all of the sort of drama that went with it. And I think that these types of services that we've been talking about are so important because they allow people, even if it's not a classic game, even if it's not a Silent Hill classic or a Resident Evil classic, even if it's a game yeah. that's five years on from its release or even 10 years on from its release, getting to experience things with a new audience that had no experience with it previously, it keeps the conversation going about games that have seemingly moved on from their initial sort of uh, praise or whatnot, or even if they didn't receive praise, yeah. even if it was them being panned. It's important to keep the conversation going. And I think that, I mean writing for bloody discussing being the editor for the video game side of things like this is why we love features so much right this is why i'm sure you enjoy yeah. features too like when a feature comes across your desk or your desktop rather that is taking a game that is several years removed from its release and its general audience that consumed it and seeing somebody highlight a reason that they enjoy it or they appreciate it or things like that yeah. imagine now an entire uh, market of gamers that are able to experience that game. And yeah, not everybody's going to appreciate it for the same reasons, but a portion of that audience will latch on to the things that people like you and I probably latched on when something like uh, Amnesia Rebirth was initially released. I'm like, yeah. that makes me so excited for the developer, but also the genre in general, horror in general, right? We kind of, we kind of dipped in and out of talking about horror in this for our, uh, the sake, <laughs> the construct of our conversation, but I mean, it all comes back to horror because of our love of horror and seeing games that were underappreciated or were panned initially, not to say like the right audience will find it, but an audience that is more in line with people that are looking for a unique experience, unlike what they have been experiencing, I think is the key of accessibility in games and ensuring that we don't lose access to our past Yeah, because then our, uh, our present is going to look very reactionary, which is not good for anybody. Yeah, uh, the the key point to bring up about any gaming company doing services like this, whether it be EA, Sony, Microsoft, whatever, is it can't be about one-upmanship. You can't just do this shit because you want to say, oh, look, look what we got that this company hasn't got. You have to think about you know archival history. You you, you want to prove that video games matter and that they need to be preserved you know, that they need this you know substance to them 
you know, that, that people beyond this generation can experience them. I think, again, going back to what I was saying before, there's an immaturity to a, a very vocal section of the fan base online that means that we don't really look at older games in the right way, you know, or even newer games, you know, there's, there's this disdain towards anything that doesn't fit a certain formula. And I think it, it's no different, if we're honest, to um, anything in, in, say, movies or, or books or whatever. Very true. The vast majority of the public like a certain kind of thing. They like something that's safe, that they know, that is familiar. And that's fine. That's how entertainment works. You have to accept that that is part and parcel of what we do in any industry because none of this exists without it. You You don't get the great stuff without having the popular popular stuff fast and furious movies will continue to exist for instance <laughs> because it's pleasing to a general audience right. and you know i get that yeah. i totally get that that's great i think they're thoroughly entertaining films they're stupid as shit they don't make any sense and i don't think they hold any creative value but as a source of entertainment wonderful but i am held safe in the knowledge that we will also get proper appreciation for things that matter and things that are interesting, insightful, you know, and creative in that medium. And I feel the same about video games. You know, it's like we were discussing even before this episode about the way someone like Hideo Kojima is perceived. And it's like, oh, look at him in his stupid, pervy ways. And it's like, it's like, yeah. And you know what? I, I could say that about so much in any medium. But he does his own thing. He doesn't give a shit about what anyone else does. Sure, he, he copies ideas about stuff he loves, but he's unapologetic about it. You know, he, he does what he wants to do. And I prefer we had more people like that in the industry than people like, you know, Activision or, you know, sorry, people, companies like Activision where they bank on the safe money every year and make it seem like their tiny iteration on what they do is this big revelation. You know, I, I would much prefer flawed ambition in, in the long run because that's where we learn and get the new ideas. Like, I think we were talking in episode about survival recently, that survival games that, you know, what that genre brought to video games in general was so influential, you know, and it only comes from people getting to do their own thing. You know, we need more of that. And I think to make Game Pass or PS Now or whatever matter, you need to have that side of it. You, know, you can criticize Netflix's model for just churning out content, but uh, it's monkeys at typewriters <laughs> in terms of what happens yeah. because you get good stuff out of it sometimes because they are willing to sort of invest in all sorts of things. And I think the, the current problem with what Game Pass is doing is like 
they can shove a bit of money onto indie titles and say, yeah, it's cheap because it's already established and people already like it. But they are needing to be a bit more ambitious, I feel, with, with new ideas and give them a chance. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, innovation is the way that we are going to continue to see advancements in everything that we love, no matter the medium. Yeah. And that's something that I think, again, talk about the infantile nature of games, they need to catch up in that regard. And I think that, again, we've seen small advancements, but we need to make start making bigger leaps in these regards. And I think that these services will, you know, it's one of those things that remains to be seen, whether they are going to be the solution or they are going to continue to funnel into the elements of games that we think we need to move on from. But uh, only time will tell, unfortunately, in this regard. But we will certainly yeah. uh, we will certainly be around to see how well they either advance or how well they uh, kind of begin to hinder the things that we want to see in the change. But uh, <laughs> but Neil, as always, this was this was probably one of my favorite conversations we've had so far, and just kind of tapping into our passion and love for games and how we, while we might have qualms with the way things are, we only want the best for a medium that uh, you and I both share a deep love for. But uh, as always, it's a pleasure chatting horror with you for Safe Room. Yeah, and I'm sorry we didn't talk about horror as much in this episode, but you know, on plus side, we, I will say Game Pass does have stuff like Dead Space Strategy. You know, it has, you can buy games like Castlevania, Lords of Shadow on game, on Xbox Series X and S, and Silent Hill and two and three, and yeah, and just play them. You know, like that. That is in itself a wonderful thing. For what, whatever reason, whatever happens, you know, elsewhere outside of that, the fact that there is a console out that can do it is great. You know, I know PCs can do this sort of thing too, but you know. PCs are a very much a more complex thing for the general public. As we just discussed, the general public don't want to mess around with stuff too much. They just want stuff fed to them. That's fine. That's the way it is, and it's the way it should be for a lot of people. And that's the way you get good stuff across to those people, which further emphasizes the point I'm making, which is if you want to revitalize things that have nearly died you've got to get that old stuff in there to a new audience uh, early, yeah it's not going to gel with, with everybody but at least you're giving it a chance absolutely but yes sorry Jay I thank you <laughs> for having your time with me here again today thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform and for updates on the show Follow us on Twitter at SafeRoomPod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.